chapter 20, verse 1, but Aaron noted that Jesus ties this parable or actually delivers this parable in answer to an event that happened in the preceding chapter. And I had never tied those two events together before, and it uh, brought about a, a new understanding that I wanted to share tonight. So let's review the parable uh, beginning in verse 1. So we find in this parable, as I scan the audience, I think we're probably all familiar with it. Uh, we find that the master in the parable hired workers to work in his vineyard at five different times during the day. Early in the morning, at the third hour of the day, at the sixth hour, at the ninth hour, and finally at the eleventh hour, uh, with only one more hour left in, in their working day. So the master had promised those he hired first a denarius, which was customary for a day's, day's wage. So he promised those he hired first who were going to work the full day a denarius. But he just promised to be fair for all the workers that he hired after that. Picking up in verse 10, when it came time to pay the workers, the master paid them all the same. Those who had worked all day complained that the master paid those who had only worked one hour the same as those who had worked all day. They didn't think that was fair. They had hoped, since he had paid those who had just worked one hour, uh, the full denarius, that they might make more. This parable deals with salvation. Of course, the most straightforward meaning is that those who are saved late in life those who become Christians late in life will receive the reward just like those who have perhaps been a lifetime in service to God and, and man as a Christian. But Jesus gives this parable in answer to a question that was raised in the preceding chapter. And that question was, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And in that discussion, the Apostle Peter had asked, we, speaking of the Apostles, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Peter was pointing out that the Apostles had sacrificed everything. So what would they receive in the kingdom of heaven? Peter made the same point as those in the parable who had worked all day and suffered through the heat of the day, as they put it. It would seem only fair that they would receive more. When we see that Peter's question and the worker's question are both tied to the idea of reward for hardship, I see another point that Jesus seems to be making in this parable regarding hardship. In just a couple of weeks now, we're going to be studying the history of Christianity uh, in the auditorium class. The history of God's people is the story of God's unfolding plan of salvation. But it's also a story of how God's people suffered persecution. Beyond what we read in Scripture, the persecutions we find there, history tells us of persecutions that continued from Bible times even now into the present and into the present. As I compare my life 
to that of Christians that I read about as I'm preparing for that class. Christians who have suffered just horrible persecutions. I realized that many gave up everything. They had to leave their homes, often fleeing with only what they had, what they could carry. And so many died horrible deaths for their faith. One could say that those Christians gave up everything to follow Jesus. Or as in the parable, they worked in the heat of the day. They worked, they lived when, the, when there were hard times. But I realized that while so many have had their faith tried by fire, I've lived comfortably in a place and in a time in history when I could worship in peace. Even today, many like the apostles have given up everything to serve God. Those who have gone to hard mission fields in Africa or India or China, those who have given up the stability of a corporate job in order to dedicate their life to preaching the gospel, or those who sacrifice so much of their time and their energy to shepherd the flocks of, of God. When I compare myself to those who have suffered or sacrificed so much to serve God, I think to myself, how can I hope to receive the same salvation as others who have given so much more than I have? As I look back on my life, rather than hardship, I see the many times that God has cleared the path for me in my life. And it seems only fair that I'll come up short in judgment when I'm compared to the hardships and the struggles that so many others have endured down through time. But this parable gives me hope. This parable describes the kingdom of heaven. It describes the master's generosity. Our God goes beyond what is just fair. Our God is merciful. Our God is a generous God. Our God wants us to be saved. And that gives me hope. That gives us all hope. I'm 73 years old, and I've never been described as a billing of an Oreo cookie. I, I hope under the heat of the matter I don't melt. I'm the least experienced speaker on the schedule tonight, and one of my old time, a little bit older than me, Mentors said, if you ever get up there to speak, you speak about one point. Don't get up there and have eight or ten different points because you're going to lose me. So I'm going to try to talk about one point tonight. And he's in attendance. If I get out of line, he's going to hold up one finger, and then I'll know i got to get back on track. I'm going to talk about commitment tonight. Um, simple word. It's found... 13 times in the Old Testament, 11 times in the New Testament, it could be committed, commit, some form of co commitment. Cyrus has 36 different words listed for commitment. Um, 
Again, a personal note, I've been told I should be committed, but I never have been committed yet as far as for other social reasons. But a definition also, after I looked up concordance and and uh, everything else as far as I could try to get zeroed in on commitment, it's a state or quality of being dedicated to a cause or activity. Or it's a pledge or understanding. Or it's an engagement or obligation that restricts freedom of action. Generally speaking, the more we love someone, the more committed we tend to be to them. Our openness to committing to God is encouraged by the deep love that we have for God. Sometimes saying yes to God means that we have to say no to a lot of other things which may appeal to us. People can make the mistake of thinking that our faith restricts our freedom when it actually fosters it. Jesus' sacrifice frees us to the purpose of our relationship with God. We can recognize how dedicated someone is to another person or thing on how much prominence we give them in our lives. Our commitment to God can't be fleeting. It has to be sustained. In other words, life is long. Our deeds are essential way of showing our dedication to him. When we commit to God, we have, <clears throat> we have to truly surrender. This does involve giving up our time and turning away from temptation. It also means actively submit ourselves to him. I looked this up and it says what commitment means. We live in a society that sometimes discourages commitment. We want to live together, but we don't want to get married. Or we will be there if we are able. The pressure of this kind of environment can quickly begin to strip, <clears throat> to shape who you become. Commitment means that certain decisions are made in advance, irrespective of the circumstances. I will honor God, whatever the pain and whatever the cost. I will obey God's word, even when that is the hardest thing to do. I will do what God has called me to do. It is draining as well as it is fulfilling. It is precisely the same level of your personal life. You have to know who you are, why you are here, and what are you supposed to be doing. Many commitments are made at the same time, and then it's a matter of priority. This past Friday, I mentioned to Patsy, ah, let's go garage sailing or I'll spend time with you. It seems like I've been doing a lot of other things other than being spending time with you. She said, well, that sounds good. Well, many months ago, I told a farmer friend, if you ever need help out in the field, and I know you're by yourself, and you're hooking up trailers and doing this and so forth, let me know. So he called me Thursday night, and he said, I want you here at 8.30 Friday morning. I said, okay. I'll be done by noon, so I'll still be able to go to the garage sales. And how long have we been here? 15, 16 years? I've committed to mow the grass. 
So I also, 15, 16 years ago, committed that I will mow grass. Well, I didn't get it done Friday. I didn't get to a garage sale Friday. I helped that joker until about 4.30 Friday afternoon. And at 5 o'clock, we made arrangements to be at someone else's home. So you really got to watch what you're committing to in the future because sometimes things will bite you. That basically was all their thoughts, and now we're going to get into my thoughts, whatever they're worth. I thought of commitments you have short-term. How are your short-term commitments? Well, how do you measure your short-term commitments? If you have a spouse, I almost guarantee you you'll know how your relationship is, or not, you'll you'll be tested on your commitment to it. How about to your work? You will know about your work if you're committed. Will you get good reviews? Maybe a pay raise? You'll keep your job? Possibly get a promotion? For the younger people, how about your schoolwork or college work, your education? Your grades will probably determine how much you've committed to getting good grades. And how about yourself? When you look in the mirror, do you do all you can be? Can you do all you can do? to fulfill all your commitments. Probably the longest or the most important long-term commitment you'll make, which is opposite of the short-term, is the commitment you make to God and your faith during the ser- during your service. Are you involved mentally? or Like during the services right now, are you involved mentally and physically? Are you thinking about what you're going to do at 6 o'clock tonight or what you did at... Four o'clock this afternoon? Are you tempted to wander in your mind when you're tempted over and over again? Do you commit to your faith or do you commit to the devil? Do you, do you worship when you're here or do you just attend and sit in a chair? Is that really commitment? Something I've said before and I'll probably say it again and I heard it this week. I heard it Friday night, I think. I'll see you later, the Lord's willing, and the creek don't rise. That's really not a commitment. That's just a slang statement, I think. But if somebody was to take you, if the creek didn't rise and the Lord's willing and you didn't meet your commitment, that probably wasn't the thing to do. Um, Don't overcommit like I did for Friday. Something I did in 1978, I was a human resources manager, first position I had with the company, and my higher-up says, now we're giving people lifetime employment. So you want people that's dedicated to staying with us, lifetime employment. That was a mistake. In 1978, I told 47 people that we're going to hire, Dana's going to hire you and you'll have lifetime commitment. Well, it was lifetime until they decided to close the plant and then their employment went away. So I committed to something in 1978 that I didn't really have control over. Also, you have athletes that sign contracts or scholarships. When I, when I was an athlete, if you signed a contract or scholarship, you stayed at that university until you got hurt, couldn't play, or whatever the case may be. What happens now with the athletes? Well, yeah, I signed a contract with, I'll use Georgia because I'm a Georgia fan. But all of a sudden, Alabama says, why don't you come play for us? 
well, the player says, sorry, George, I'm going to go play for Alabama. That, that's not a very good commitment to me. It seems like they, they um, didn't uphold their, their um, contract. Now the question is, what can you commit to? Things I commit to on a daily basis, many things come to mind is marriage, work, which I'm retired, but I do a lot of things on the site for work, try to be a team member, working on weight loss, family relationships, working out, honey-do list, vacation planning, stopping bad habits, get more sleep, and I bet you have one or two you could add to that. Most important commitment you can make, any of us should have, is to God. And it has to be an active commitment, not passive. Oh, I committed yesterday. I might commit tomorrow. I'll just take it easy today. That won't work. We can wait and see what happens. God deserves the best we have to offer. In conclusion, if we will commit our daily living and goals to the Lord, we will be successful Christians. Then, when it is our time to quit the walks of men, among men, we can then say along with this, then we can say along, for I am ready to be offered, and it is time for my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And that's in 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 7. So hopefully I've tweaked your mind a little bit when you say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Make sure you got the Lord in your mind of what you're going to commit to. Because the consequences long-term could be the most joyous decision you make or the most devastating decision you make. Because the devil's right there knocking on the door. He wants you to commit to everything he's got for you. And boy, is it attractive sometimes. So bear that in mind, and God bless you. My remarks are going to come from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, if you'd like to turn there. I'd ask Jeff, are we going to do a theme, or is it going to be a buffet? He said, well, a buffet. Well, I don't see too many Oreos on a buffet. What I see is I see a salad bar, and then I see uh, then they say an entree, and then I see a dessert. So I think Jeff was the salad, Tim was the entree, and now I'm the dessert. I'm the cherry pie. <laughs> My, my remarks this morning are, in, are entitled, uh, Before the Evil Day Comes. Before the Evil Days Come. And it's from Ecclesiastes 12, and I want to read just a few of these verses to, to introduce the remarks. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, when you will say, I have no delight in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are dark and the clouds return after the rain. In the day that the watchmen of the houses tremble and the mighty men stoop and the grinding ones stand idle because they are few. And those who look through windows grow dim. And the doors on the street 
are shut as the sound of the grinding mill is low, and one will arise at the sound of the bird, and all the daughters of song will sing softly. Furthermore, men are afraid of a high place and of terrors on the road. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags himself along, the cape berry is ineffective. For man goes to his eternal home while mourners go about in the street. In verse 7 8, the dust will return to the earth as it was. The spirit will return to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. From about verse 2 on, what is being described uh, are the evil days. And the evil days are those days of our aging years. Those days when we get older and we become aged. And age, age is maybe described generally as a loss of physical strength. And that's what's being described in these verses, by the way. Each, each description is a description of some kind of loss of physical strength or of mental strength. That's what each of these descriptions is talking about. And you can look up a commentary and they'll... They'll explain what each of these phrases are. But you know what aging is like, right? Because every time you complain about some bump or bruise or ache or pain, I'll tell Jay, well, just wait until you're 66. And then Jeff will tell me, well, wait, just wait until you're 76. And then Bob, where'd Bob go? And then Bob will tell Jeff, well, just wait until you're 86. And of course, all of those things are true. Because as we get older, the physical limitations, mental limitations, they grow more and more stressful. They go more, they grow more and more acute. Now I'll tell you what, as a contrast, uh, this is, this, these kinds of lessons where you can put some people on the spot, right? I mean, look at the contrast. You know, when I was younger and I was starting to exercise and work out a lot, I could do four miles an hour on the treadmill pretty easily. I'd just get on the treadmill, boom, four miles an hour, and I'd just go, go, go. If I tried to do four miles on a treadmill now, I would fall, I would fall and break my neck. Hey, you know, look at these young guys over here. Look at, look at Landon and Seth. Every time I see them go from there to there, I say, how do you do that? <laughs> they have so much pep and so much energy. Well, that is, that's part of aging, isn't it? I used to be able to do that when I was that age. But when you get older, you lose that vitality. When you get older, you lose that strength, both physically and mentally. Your mental facilities are not as sharp as they once were. You know, my wife is starting to say to me, well, you know, I just told you that. <laughs> really? I don't remember. <laughs> but the saddest part of getting older sometimes is this loss of interest in spiritual things. Because the first verse is talking about that element of aging. When we get older, we might tend to get set in our ways 
And it gets harder and harder to change our ways, even when we really need to be changing our ways. Now, this is not absolute, obviously, is it? I mean, we have some examples right here at North where some elderly, where, where one of our elderly members changed in her later years and obeyed the gospel, Sister Trinae. And what a wonderful thing that is. But you know that that's, one of the reasons that was so wonderful is because you just don't see it that much, do you? You don't see it that often. And all of us have memories and stories and reminiscences about people, maybe in our own family, and I know I do in mine. I have an aunt that just passed away. She was 94 years old. And she lived a good long life and she lived a very blessed life. She was never a Christian. She never confessed Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And I know personally that my father tried many times because she was his favorite sister. He tried many times to convince her to obey the gospel, to express faith in Jesus Christ and obey the gospel and become a Christian. She never did. And in her later years, as her mental facilities diminished and became you know, very, uh, uh, very, very poor, she, there was un- she was unable. She would have been unable to change. There was no way she was going to be reached. And that's what, this, that's what this verse is talking about. When the evil days come and the years draw near, when you say, I have no delight in those things anymore. You know, the Bible does speak to certain people who cannot be reached anymore with the truth. They can't be reached with the gospel. They've, they've hardened their heart and they've hardened their mind and nothing, it seems, that nothing that is said, nothing that is done is going to change them. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 6 talks about this situation. He says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and, and have tasted of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 3 talks about certain people that he saw as as Michael talked about in Lamentations. People who just would not repent. They just wouldn't change. And that's sad. That's really sad. Really, really sad. And that is why we see the contrast here. Solomon is encouraging. He's encouraging young people to remember their creator when they're young. In the days of their youth. Now this paragraph actually starts in this previous chapter and verses 9 and 10. And Michael said it right earlier uh, yesterday, uh, this morning, maybe I think he said it. You know, Ralph's rules: read, 
the next verse. But sometimes Ralph rules is read the previous verses. Read the previous verses and the next verses. So here we're going to read the previous verses too. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know, know that God will bring you to judgment for these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. I really encourage young people when I talk to them to make up your mind. You know, with the stories we read about godly people who had great success were people who made up their mind as young people like Daniel. We read about Daniel in Daniel chapter 1. It says he set his heart. It means he made up his mind. He made up his mind early on in his life that he was going to be faithful and true to his creator and look how God blessed him. We read, we mentioned it this morning that even as a young man, possibly a teenager, here he is standing before the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, king, emperor of the world at the time. And this emperor is bowing down to him. Why? Because he sat his heart. He set his mind to follow the Lord. Set your mind, young people. Set your mind to do what you love and love what you do. Don't be fickle. Don't be changing your mind all the time. Figure out what it is you want to do and then do it with all your heart and be sure that you set your heart on your creator. Remember him in the days of your youth, and you may very well be a Daniel. You may very well be a Joseph who set his heart to follow the Lord and do his will. And he became the second in command to all of Egypt, the greatest empire of that day. And David, Michael spoke about David this morning, his great Power and the spirit that came upon him. Why? Why was God's spirit upon him? Because he set his heart early on, early in his life. As a young man, his heart was like God. And he set his heart to love the Lord and follow his creator. And be faithful to everything that his creator taught him. And finally... As a young person, and really not even as a young person, but really as right now. Because, you know, however young you are, you're not going to ever be young. We're never going to recapture the lost years, days, weeks, moments. We're not going to recapture anything. And so all we really have is right now. And so the Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Working together with him, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Yes, the grace of God can be received in vain. Meaning we receive all these blessings and all of these opportunities from God and yet we don't act on them. We don't don't follow him. We don't do his will. We don't set our heart 
follow our creator in the days of our youth or just from this moment on, however old you are. For he says at the acceptable time, I listened to you and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. For anyone that's in our audience, no matter how old you are, no matter how, no matter what age you find yourself, no matter what your aches and pains are, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day you can set your heart, make up your mind that you're going to follow your creator all of the rest of your days, whether it's the third hour, the ninth hour, the eleventh hour, whatever hour it is in your life, you're going to set your heart to follow the Lord. You need to be baptized. Do you need to repent of past sins? Whatever your situation may be, won't you come while together we stand and sing the song that's been selected?